tonight, we're going to be starting our new series in the book of Malachi. Paul's going to be starting from chapter one, verse one to five, uh, looking at the book of Malachi. It's going to be a great encouragement to us. I can't wait for us to start going through this amazing book together. So Paul's going to be leading our time uh, through that this evening. We're going to have our reading for this evening, uh, Malachi uh, chapter one, verses one to five. Paul's going to uh, speak. I'll pray. I've got Chris. We've got a 181 uh, show here. So Chris uh, from 181 is going to uh, read our passage, Malachi chapter one, verses one to five. And then after he does that, I'll pray. And then Paul speaks. And look at this. Look at the, the technology. We're going to go live to Chris now. Um, Chris, thank you so much for praying. Seamless. Thanks, uh, reading. OK, let's read from Malachi chapter one, verses one to four. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his, this hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Thank you, Dan. Well, you guys are starting a series in Malachi tonight, and that is brilliant. I love the book of Malachi. It's very short, but it packs an incredible punch. And um, I think it's a great book to be reading at this point in our history. This morning, we were talking about how we um, some of us may find that at the moment, our passion for Jesus has been quite diminished over the last few months. We um, haven't had the privilege of meeting together as God's people. We haven't had the privilege of um, of, um, of 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 um, of sharing communion in quite the same way. We haven't had the privilege of singing together, um, and uh, and and all of that is is hard for our spiritual health. And so it's brilliant to be spending time in the Book of Malachi because in Malachi, um, God is speaking to a bunch of people whose passion has really ebbed away. They haven't been through any great traumatic experiences together um their grandparents had their uh well their great-grandparents their great-grandparents had uh, grown up a time when babylon was dominating the world and when they'd been taken away um into exile in babylon and spent years digging irrigation canals um in the iraqi desert um but then after 50 years um god had reached out and their parents had come back home back to Jerusalem, back to the city where God had blessed his people so richly um, under Solomon, where they've been so rich that even the shields um, of the guards have been made out of gold. And they've been on their way back to Jerusalem with all the promises of the prophets and all their hopes for the return as they made their way back to Jerusalem. But by this point, they've been back in Jerusalem for some 60 years or so. And um, they've rebuilt the temple and uh, under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. And then not very much has happened, really. Um, they've ended up as a, a very small uh, part of the massive Persian Empire. You can see the massive Persian Empire in blue there. And you can see a tiny little red dot right 
in the middle of it down here. And uh, that is all of the territory that they control. You might not even be able to see the red dot unless you've got quite a big screen because it's such a tiny amount of territory that they controlled. It was hardly anything um, at all. And, and the idea that their God was the great God who ruled the whole universe, the only God who really mattered. That was a hard idea to hang on to um, when they're part of this massive multi-faith Persian empire. And they're just a tiny little backwater in it. How can they claim that their God is the great God who rules the universe? These are the sort of things that the, the Malachi's people are struggling with. And frankly, they've grown pretty cynical and uh, pretty bleak by the time that we get to read the book of Malachi. If you look at um, what they say at the start there, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. I mean, what better way to start than by talking about God's love it's the greatest subject in the universe isn't it and uh, this morning we were thinking about how it's as we look at the cross and see god's love there that is what uh, transforms our view of the whole world and so god starts by talking about his love but straight away malachi's people straight away come back with heckling and uh, questions how have you loved us how have you loved us this seems like such and irrelevancy and so god speaks through malachi to show them how awesome and glorious his love is i don't know how you would speak to a bunch of people that you wanted to show them that god's love is the most significant and important thing in the universe you could talk about god's love in all sorts of ways couldn't you there's so many uh, uh, areas to god's love so many different themes about God's love in the Bible. We could talk about God's love inside the Trinity. The fact that Jesus says to the Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Before there was anything in the world, there was love between the members of the, the persons of the Trinity. They loved one another with a perfect, passionate love for the whole of eternity. And so before the universe exists, there is love, God's love eternally. And we could talk about God's love of creation. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. He has loving kindness towards all that he has made. It says a few verses later, God delights in the world that he has made. He loves everything that he has made. We could talk about God's love for all of humanity, seen even humanity that's going to reject him and end up under his judgment, seen most radically at the moment that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And then later says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. This is the love of God to those who reject him, even those who will die rejecting him like Jerusalem is going to do as it's going to be destroyed. One generation after Jesus has uh, spoken to them and warned them God's love for all of humanity and it's a posture that we see throughout the prophets um, Ezekiel uh, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the sovereign Lord rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live God's intense compassion I take no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the sovereign Lord repent and live this is our God, one who stands with his arms held open to disobedient people Isaiah 65 verse 2 longing that they would turn around to him even as they don't reciprocate his love or we could talk about god's god's fatherly pleasure in our obedience as the father has loved me so have i loved you now remain in my love if you keep my commands you will remain in my love john 15 verses 9 to 10 there's so many different 
um, elements to God's love in the Bible that we could talk about. But God knows that Malachi's people are very hardened and they've become very apathetic. They've become very rebellious. And he needs a way to get through the hardness of their hearts. And the way he speaks is absolutely fascinating and quite uncomfortable, I think intentionally, because he wants to blow away the cobwebs of apathy that so often entangle our hearts. This is what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Esau I have hated. What? Wait a minute. You know, we, we just read that God is loving towards all that he has made. But now he's saying that I hated Esau. It's quite uncomfortable to read, isn't it? But this is God's way of showing his people the radicality of his love for them. And it's his way of speaking to us tonight to show us how shocking his love is for us. It's so easy for us as people who've grown up in a culture that knows and values the idea that God is love. Well, knows the idea that God is love, but doesn't value the idea that God is love. To think that God's love is a cliche, to think that it is inevitable and it is insignificant. That's how most people in the world think about God's love. If you talk to people um, in my village here in Kemsing about what God is like, probably one of the first things they'd say is that he is love. But they would say it's irrelevant because it's inevitable and it is insignificant. But God wants to show us tonight that his love is not inevitable. It is free and it is not insignificant. It is the most important thing in the universe. Now, what are we to make of the fact that God says here, Esau, I have hated. Well, we need to be a bit careful because we've already seen, haven't we, that God does love all that he has made and that he, he reaches out his arms towards all of humanity. And in Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus says something that um, is very striking. Uh, we looked at it together as a church a little while ago. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This morning I saw my parents at church. Does this passage mean that I should hate them, be consumed with hatred for them? My, my brother is uh, hosting this event. Uh, Andy, should I, should I be consumed with hatred for him? Uh, my children are, are watching this uh, in the uh, kitchen. Hey, guys. Um, as they are eating um, their, their dinner. Is Jesus telling me here to hate my children? Quite obviously not. Quite obviously not. Jesus does not want us to hate the closest people in our lives. But what he does want is that our love for him should be so radical and so intense that no other love we have compares to that love. And God speaks here to Israel and says, my love for you as my people is so intense, so intense that by comparison, it is though I hated Esau. Who is Esau? Who is Jacob? You might be wondering that. Well, Abraham was the one who was given all the promises. He had a son called Isaac who married uh, a lady named Rebecca and they had children 
named Esau and Jacob. Esau was the elder, but only by um, a few minutes. Jacob was the younger. Um, and um, and so Esau and Jacob were these two children. Jacob was the ancestor of um, all of God's people, which is why it's relevant um, for Malachi's people. And uh, Esau was a wicked man. Um, Esau was godless. Esau treated God with contempt. Esau treated God's standards with contempt. Esau was violent. Esau was at times filled with a murderous rage. Esau deserved nothing from God. And so maybe we could take from that and think, okay, so fair enough. Esau came under God's judgment. Maybe then the answer we should take from this is that God loves moral people. God loves good people. But as we go through the story of Jacob, we quickly realize that that doesn't really work as an explanation for what's going on. Jacob, he is not a good man. Jacob is a bad man. Jacob is a cheat. Jacob is a liar. Jacob is dishonest. Jacob is a, a bad husband and a bad father. He is he's not a good man. And yet God loves him. What does that mean? And actually, what's even stranger is that God loves him before he is born. So it's not that there's any difference between Esau and Jacob because God loves Jacob before he is born. Look at Genesis 25. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. This is God speaking to Rebecca, the mother of Esau and Jacob. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And Paul reflects on this in Romans chapter nine. And he says this in verses 11 and 12 of Romans nine. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So Jacob receiving this love from God was not linked to anything that he did. Because the decision was made before he was born. That's what Paul says. And the point that God wants us to take from this is that his love is not inevitable. It is strange and it is mysterious and it is inexplicable. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter seven to ten, God speaks to the nation of Israel and he says, this is not why I loved you. It's not because you're the biggest nation. This is not why I loved you. It's not because you're the nicest nation. This is not why I loved you. It's not because you're the only nation I could choose. No, the whole earth is mine, but I set my love on you. And he never explains why he loved them. It's a bit strange. Ima imagine for a minute um, that we, we, let's imagine two hypothetical people. Okay. An imaginary person called Phil an imaginary person called Liz and Phil and Liz are sitting at the end of Brighton Pier watching the sunset and eating fish and chips. And Liz turns to Phil and she says, Phil, I love you. And she just can't help it. It's just sucked out of her by his awesomeness, his his haircut, his smile, his sense of humor. There's there's nothing that she can do to resist the words just bubbling up out of her. Now, Malachi is saying that God's love is not like that. It is not an involuntary love that's sucked out of him by our perfections. No, 
actually it's a love that he chose to feel he was not compelled he wasn't forced to love us in luke chapter 10 verse 21 jesus says um i praise you um I, I, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. It wasn't the smartest people that followed Jesus, but those to whom God revealed Jesus. And we are here this evening uh, coming to worship Jesus, not because we are the smartest and the best people in our towns and villages, but because God has been infinitely kind to us, because he has reached out and drawn us to himself. A few weekends ago, we uh, baptized someone up at the garden stage at Otford Manor. And, uh, and she said, all this time that I was seeking God, I realized now that he was drawing me to himself. It was God's mercy, God's kindness. That is why I am now following him. But we kind of wonder, don't we, is this really love? We're much more familiar with the sort of love that is drawn out by the perfections of the beloved. So is it really love if if God looks at us and he sees so much sin and so much ugliness, as we thought this morning, sees us being those who are addicted to sin, who are powerless to change, those who are um, sinners who have intentionally broken his good command to love, sees us as those who are ungodly, those who treat him with contempt and care nothing for him is that really love then if he sees so many imperfections and then says that he loves us or is it simply that he merely tolerates us but actually this sort of love that sets itself on someone that commits itself to someone that is the most precious sort of love and it's the sort of love that we all long for um Elizabeth Barrett Browning was a poet in the 1800s and she wrote a beautiful sonnet to her husband um, and um, it wasn't intended for publication, but it was published after her death. And it, it said this, if thou must love me, let it be for naught, except for love's sake only. Do not say I love her for her smile, her look, her way of speaking gently for a trick of thought that falls in well with mine and certes brought a sense of pleasant ease on such a day. For these things in themselves, beloved, may be changed or changed for thee and love so wrought may be unwrought so. Neither love me for thine own dear pities, wiping my cheeks dry. A creature might forget to weep who bore thy comfort long and lose thy love thereby. But love me for love's sake that evermore thou mayest love on through love's eternity. She says, don't love me for this reason. Don't love me for that reason, because if you do. I might change. There's a famous song by Billy Joel that was also sung by Barry White. Um, Don't go changing, trying to please me. Um, I love you just the way you are. And on the one hand, it sounds lovely. You know, I love you just the way you are, but it's also quite threatening. Don't change. Don't change. Otherwise, I might stop loving you. And that's actually quite, it's actually a very unromantic song, I think myself, because I mean, I've been 11 years ago, I proposed to Liz. And, uh, and then we got married in Oakwell Church in uh, December 2010, 2000, 2009. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and that, you know, and, and I've changed quite a bit since then. Do you know what I mean? If Liz loved me for my athleticism, 
I've eaten quite a lot of Jaffa cakes since 2009. And, uh, you know, not quite so athletic as I was in 2009. Uh, if Liz loved me for my sense of humor, well, we've been blessed with people in our lives who have caused me to become a lot more sleep deprived. And I'm not sure my sense of humor is quite as uh, sharp as it was or uh, uh, as it was 11 years ago. Do you know what I mean? I have changed. I have changed. But Liz promised that she would love me as we stood there in Oakville Church, that she would love me for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. She set her love on me. And that is the most precious sort of love, isn't it? A love that doesn't say why, but instead just commits. That is what we all long for. And in the Bible, God's people are repeatedly pictured as a completely unworthy spouse. As one who, as a spouse who treats her husband with utter contempt, who behaves in the most wicked and abominable ways, and yet who God carries on loving and reaching out to and staying committed to because he does not love them for a reason. He loves them because he is love and he has set his love upon them. And this is why we are certain of knowing God's love eternally, because his love is free and he has set it upon us. He has poured out his love upon us and it is so undeserved. God so loved, not the good, God so loved the world, the wicked world in rebellion against him. God so loved us and gave his son for us. It's undeserved, incomprehensible love. And it is the most significant thing in the universe, um, is infinitely significant. Look at how Malachi carries on. I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated, and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says they may build but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Edom is going to be destroyed. And that's what happened. Edom was um, destroyed. Um, it seemed impossible at the time. So they were allied with the superpower, but, but the promises came true. And we should not feel sad about this. It was a just thing. Edom had acted wickedly. Um, Edom... We're told in Obadiah 14 that Edom had, had waited and cut down the refugees escaping from Jerusalem, waiting by the crossroads to kill people and plunder them. That is utterly evil, utterly wicked. And the Bible is clear that there is profound evil and profound wickedness. And sadly, we've seen things like what Edom did happening throughout the world through history. Because this is what we are like as humanity it's a fairy tale believe, to believe that God, the perfectly loving and just one, will ignore that sort of wickedness. No, one day his judgment will come. And, and what happened to Edom, we are told in the Bible, is only a foretaste of what will happen to all those in rebellion against God. They will face utter destruction. They will be crushed. And it will go on forever. Edom may say we will rebuild the ruins, but no, I will destroy them eternal futility eternal disaster eternal punishment that is the future of those 
who don't know Jesus. And that is just. And it is good. But it is also awful and terrifying. We weep for those we love that will face that. But we know that the unfair thing is not that Edom faced that. The unfair thing is that God's people did not face it. How could that be that they did not face judgment in this way? And we find the answer in Isaiah 53 verses four to six. As Isaiah looked forward and said, surely about the Lord Jesus, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is love. God's judgment is utterly terrifying. But but God's love is so committed And so inexplicable that it leads to God himself coming and taking the punishment in our place out of love and compassion for us. We don't deserve that, but that is how God has treated us. This is his lavish, incomprehensible love. And you might be here this evening thinking, well, but am I, you know, maybe I'm a descendant of Esau. Maybe I'm just shut out. Well, Esau had a descendant named Canaz and Canaz, he came to put his trust in God. And as a result, he was welcomed into God's people. And and one of his descendants was Caleb, Caleb the Kenazite, who was one of the leading figures um, amongst God's people. God's people have always been defined by faith. If you put your trust in Jesus, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Afterwards, you'll look back and you will give him the glory and you will say, thank you. You are drawing me to yourself. But at the moment, your responsibility is, will I come to Jesus and put my trust in him? And if you do, then you will know that his love is utterly committed to you and you can rely upon him. And his love is the most important thing in the universe. It is free. It is inexplicable. And yet it is the most significant thing because it affects the whole of our eternity.